If talking doesn't work, then go play the field. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Magic. BTS. Speculative. Foraging. Cannibals. These are just some of the single words you may find on our Keep It Fictional bingo sheet. Thank you for tuning in to another book chat from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm Virginia here with Sadie, Fiona, Corinne, and Allison. And today's episode is inspired by my belief that less is more. Unless you're talking about books, and of course, more is more. It's inspired by my very annoying habit that all my coworkers know of keeping things minimalist and getting rid of stuff. And so all our books today only have one word in the title. And I feel like if you choose the right word, then you really just need that one word to capture the essence of the story. So we'll find out if that is indeed the case for the books that everyone has chosen for today. So since this is a pretty broad criteria, I hope that this was not a stressful episode today. (laughs) And I hope that you have picked something either from your wheelhouse or maybe you already check out and borrow or maybe you're inspired by the word in the title. We will find out. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you have got. So why don't we start today off with Alison? So my book today, definitely the title is the core of what this book is about. The book that I'm talking about today is Tigana by Guy Gabriel Kay. Now, in this book, 20 years ago, two conquerors, two sorcerers from different countries came and attacked the Palm, a peninsula of land made up of nine warring provinces and split up the land between themselves. And one of those conquerors, Brandon of Egroth, sent his son, Stevan, to go and capture one of the provinces named Tigana. But the people of Tigana were stronger than Brandon anticipated, and Prince Valentin of Tigana slew Stevan at the Battle of the Disa, and Brandon's grief and rage were so great that he fashioned a spell that would take the name of Tigana away from everyone who was not born there. So nobody in the Palm who was not born in Tigana can remember or even hear the name of the province. It has now been renamed Lower Corte and is very downtrodden and oppressed in a way that most of the rest of the provinces are not, even though they are under control of Brandon of Egrath. And we cut to now, when a young singer named Devon gets the unexpected pleasure of being part of the company who is to sing and play music for the funeral of Duke Sandre of Astabar, who has died just before the festival days of the Palm. So 
in the middle of singing this funeral, when they take a break, Devin overhears unexpectedly a plot. A plot that he learns later is to try and kill the other tyrant, Alberico of Barbadio. And this sets off a cascade of events where Devin gets brought in to a plot to try and bring back Tigana's name, to try and bring back Tigana to the palm and its history and its name and its people. So Tigana is an epic fantasy, but for an epic fantasy, it has relatively little magic. The magic at the center of this book is the spell that we use to take away Tigana's name. And aside from that, there is relatively little magic. This is a book about politics. This is a book about characters. And over the course of several hundred pages, we find out more about these characters, more about the world they live in, and just speed onwards to an epic conclusion. I came to this book as a reread. This is a book that I read for the first time back in the early 2000s. And what brought me to this book was my vague memory of the fact that this book had a queer character. And for a book written in 1990, that is somewhat surprising. Granted, spoilers, skip ahead five seconds if you don't want spoilers for Tigana. The queer character dies. <laughs> he dies at the end of the first part, but the character stuck with me and I think is really somewhat well executed, especially given the time. This is a book about names. This is a book about legacy and memory. But most of all, it's a book about pride. And it's a book about how pride can spur us on to great things but it's also a book about how pride can destroy us. So if you are looking for a book that is beautifully written, if you are looking for a book that has a lot of court politics and intrigue and has very deep characterization of its characters, then I highly recommend Tigana by Guy Gabriel Kay. Thank you, Allison. You said all those magic words, court intrigue characters. <laughs> Actually, that was one of the books I was kind of thinking about. Like, you know, we have an upcoming episode on books that intimidate you. I feel like that would be mine because it just is such a huge book and it's such a like important work that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to go there. But anyway, yeah. So thank you for that review. We are going over to Miss Corrine and see what she's got for us. Yes, I am also strangely bringing the CanCon today, which feels strange, maybe a little bit unnatural. So today I will be playing Fiona's role in this podcast. And this uh, one word title is a book that I've been meaning to read ever since it was on the 2023 Canada Reads long list. I read the premise and I thought it was really interesting. I will preface this by saying it's not a book for everyone, but if you enjoy like a slow cooker of a family drama, then this is absolutely up your alley. So the story starts in Sparwood. Sparwood, BC, if you are familiar with it. And the year is 1987. Lily, 
is growing up in this very small town, uh, one of only the handful of Asian families in this primarily mining town. The town is kind of split along different lines. There's the management and there are the miners, the union workers. And then there are the small group of Asian families and the white families. Lily is 11 years old. She is growing up with her younger sister, B, who is, as all younger sisters are, annoying. She won't leave her alone. She's her constant shadow and follows her everywhere, including over to her best friend Hillary's house. Her father, Aloy, works at the mine, and when asked what her father actually does, Lily has no idea. He takes his lunchbox in the morning, disappears, and then comes back very tired at night. She does know a little bit more about her mother, Sui Hua, who she spends more time with. Her mother is enchanting. She has a beautiful singing voice. She's vibrant. She's extroverted. She loves to talk with people and is always the center of attention in a room. But in her, Lily also senses sadness. Her father was stateless. So even though he lived and worked in Brunei with the rest of his family, he was stateless. He did not have the status of a citizenship. In fact, he didn't have citizenship anywhere. He moved to Canada, worked under the table for many years, and eventually gained his Canadian citizenship, of which he is very, very proud, and wants to shed his old identity and become fully Canadian. Her mother had a state. Her mother often brags to her father about holding a Malaysian passport and being a citizen of that country that one day she would like to take their family and return. Her mother is also very proud of her identity and will fight everyone tooth and nail, including on the tennis court, who tries to slight her in any way. Her mother is an outsider in a lot of ways, and the family is even an outsider in another sense in that they speak Hokkien, so they don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, they speak their own dialect. And so Lily and B and Sui Hua and Aloy are not always able to communicate fully with the other families. But for all intents and purposes, Lily's life is very, very normal. She has school. There are bullies. She has an annoying younger sister. Um, she's growing up, riding bikes every night, getting lost in creeks, up and until the day that her mother disappears. She comes home from school with her younger sister, comes into the house, realizes her mother is not there. They sit down and watch TV until their father comes home from work and asks, where's your mother? And they both reply, I don't know. As their father frantically tries to find out where Sui Hua is, he soon realizes that she has taken all of her money, all of her jewelry, all of her pictures, and disappeared. She's talked to no one else in the community. She hasn't let anyone know her plans. She's simply gone. The story shifts then into the present day where Lily has just given birth to her daughter. The father is Ukrainian-Canadian with a very strong sense of community, a strong sense of pride, whereas Lily is a little bit more ambivalent. As her family tries to organize a 100-day celebration, she feels that something is missing in her. She doesn't feel like a good mother. She doesn't feel connected to her own daughter. And she realizes that this is because that bit of her personhood, that missing mother figure is still haunting her. 
And so she decides to go on a quest to see if she can track down what happened to Sui Hua. So this is a debut novel by Jamie Chai Yun Liu, and it is called Dandelion. And she takes this metaphor for people. That little tuft of the dandelion is people, and when the wind blows in it, they scatter and settle in all parts of the earth. What I thought was quite impressive is she is actually an immigration lawyer that does work with stateless people. So not only is she a lawyer, but she's an amazing writer. And she pulls not directly from the stories of the people that she worked with, but the idea of being stateless. She talks a lot about how in her line of work, people wouldn't realize that they were stateless until they went to a government office to apply for a birth certificate or to apply for a passport and then would realize that they are not citizens of the country that they have been born in and living in for years. She likens this to becoming a ghost. Your life ends there when you realize that you no longer have a state. And she uses this metaphor for Suihua and for Lily. When this traumatic event happens, a part of them dies. And they drift through their life different or unwhole from that point forward. This is definitely a... Oh, it's it's a haunting book in a way. And yeah, I'm, I'm extending the metaphor from the ghost thing. Um, it's definitely a haunting book. Lily is kind of like a detached character. The writing reminded me a lot of maybe like Margaret Lawrence or Joy Kagawa in the same way that all of these things have happened to this person, but because of this trauma, they're not able to like emotionally grapple with it. They just move from one thing to the other in their life, being kind of buffeted from side to side by these events and not able to kind of emotionally deal with it, which makes the book all the more impactful because you as the reader are kind of doing all the emotional work for this character. So it's a very interesting reading experience. And there are some scenes, there is a particular scene in this book that will probably haunt me until my dying day, which is when Aloy, so her father, comes to visit his granddaughter for the first time and she is asleep upstairs and he is come to prepare this special soup for her. So this traditional soup from her village that is given to new mothers. And he's brought all the ingredients in two plastic bags and he puts them on the counter and he starts preparing this food for her and kind of chastising Lily about how she needs to get a birth certificate for the daughter because it is the most important thing. And Lily doesn't really understand why he's so adamant about this. And he keeps insisting. And so to kind of break the silence in the conversation, she finally breaks the silence of, of many, many years and asks, do you know what happened to mom? And he immediately puts down the knife, stops cooking, and walks out of the house. It's so good. So if you are looking for like a very emotionally affecting family story, a kind of beautiful meditation about the arbitrariness of the state and some really good, powerful writing, I would definitely suggest that you pick up Dandelion and hope to see it on uh, CBC Canada Reads one day. Thank you, Miss Corinne, for bringing some candy. Hey, you never know, maybe Fiona still have some candy for us. And also, maybe lawyers should just all go become writers because Charles Yu was also a lawyer to start with. So they should all just maybe change career, I feel like, maybe. Anyway, 
All right. Well, I'm going to bring some different kinds of emotions to this podcast now. After that emotional read from Corinne this week, it's like my body needs to cleanse itself of all that sunshine from last week. So every book I pick up is basically the polar opposite of all the books we talked about on last episode. So if you're in the mood for some existential dread, boy, do I have a book for you. And dread would be that one word that I would describe this book if I were to rename it, even though it has a perfect name already, but it is definitely dread. This is a compulsive one-sitting read for me. I cannot look away despite feeling that you're being like pinned to the wall and you can't move. I was saying to Corinne recently, it just feels like you're being, some of these days you feel like you're being pounded to the ground. And that's how I feel like when I was reading this book, that you're trying to scrape yourself up and somebody would just like step on you and grind you back down and be like, uh, 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 stay down there. Not yet. It feels very much like that, that I, I do enjoy every minute of it, not just because of the exquisite writing, but also because so many things sort of resonate with me. Our main character is Cassie and Cassie lives with a black hole. A black hole that sometimes is tiny like a dot and some days is huge and is right up to her face. And it's always following her wherever she goes and she wonders if she was born with it. Cassie works at a new but very successful startup in Silicon Valley. The company is valued at like $16 billion, something ridiculous like that. And she does marketing and promotion there. So even though it's a tech company, she doesn't do the tech, she doesn't do the coding stuff. And her supervisor is the co-founder. So she's pretty high up on the food chain. Cassie has relocated to San Francisco for this job. And she remember when her dad was driving her to the airport, he said to her, you belong to San Francisco now. There is nothing here left for you. So go get them. So now she lives in San Francisco in a very overpriced apartment that is not even close to the office. Every morning she needs to call a ride to get her to the train station, to take the train along with all the commuters, all of them heading off to one startup or another. Cassie calls them the believers. These believers who wear their company-issue shirts and pop jackets. They have headphones in their ears to drown out the noise of reality. They're heading to the meetings in probably some big auditoriums where they gaze in awe and reference at their CEOs and they hang on to their every word. As an aside, I love how the author first represent the CEO in Cassie's company. The CEO talks in binary code because that's how they sound like. So it's got like, like these like two, three pages of just like zero and ones. It was awesome. Anyway, so the CEOs, they will talk about excellence, lean bodies, optimization, peak performances. Don't stop. Never stop. Keep working. You're better than everyone else. Work harder, work harder, work harder. Transcend your fears. Leave your heart at home. All that matters is your output. And these believers, they would clap, they would cheer, and then they would partake in the feast of all the fruits that are always available in the staff room. And we're not talking about your watermelon, grapes, platter. We're talking about dragon fruits. We're talking about mangoes. We're talking about pomegranates, all these like exotic fruits. And then they would go back to the desks and then they would work harder and harder and harder and they would have their keystrokes locked to make sure that they are typing fast enough and they are working hard enough. Cassie is not like them. She doesn't have it in her. She doesn't have that drive to conquer. She doesn't have that killer instinct. She doesn't have that passion. 
every morning she does a line of cocaine so that she can get through the day. And she has a black hole. Nobody else seems to have a black hole hanging out, following her. But every morning, the moment she walks through those office doors, her fake self takes over. A fake self that has perfected the lingual, that has adopted that belief systems and the attitudes of a believer. And she's so good at this fake self that the CEO one day invites her to a special meeting. There were just five people there, and the CEO is looking for ideas to take down their competitor. Yes, the company is doing well, but you know the competitor is gaining ground, and we need to like do something about that. So brainstorm. What ideas do you have? And as ideas fly around the room, you can tell that nothing is quite good enough for the CEO. They're not quite what he's looking for. Until Cassie spoke up, the fake self Cassie spoke up. And set an idea that makes the CEO smile, an idea vicious enough to sabotage their rivals for sure. As they were leaving this meeting, Cassie felt sick to her stomach. She can't believe she let that fake self spoke for her, and she can tell that all the people that were there at the meeting were looking at her and reevaluating her. And she watched that black hole expand. And expand. This is out of the press. A brand new book that came out this week, and this is "Ripe" by Sarah Rose Adler, and it has a stunning photo of the inside of a pomegranate on the front. And I can't really look at it for too long because it they look like nails to me. Those seeds, and that really bothers me a lot. But anyway, it is a not just. A pretty picture, but the book is actually structured in four parts, and each of them named after a section of a pomegranate. You've got the exocarp, the mesocarp, the membrane, and then the seeds. And it's a really good structure to capture the story progression, and it reveals that inner workings of Cassie as things around her rip and tear her apart. This book, Carmen Maria Machado said, is a knife. To the heart, and it stresses Roxanne Gayouts. And aside from that, increasing pressure from work to do more and more inhumane and horrible things. Cassie's reading all the news on the phone, the California wildfires, the virus that is coming. She wrestles with changes in the relationship with somebody who. It lives with his girlfriend, but it's in an open relationship. So he's trying things out, and he was told that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't fall in love. And of course, Cassie is may have some different feelings about this. As Cassie tried to realize that she can't afford to live here despite having a job, she just got notice that her rent is about to go up another nine hundred dollars. She can't shop at those organic food stores that everybody else seems to be going to. She has to take a bus across town to shop at a discount supermarket where everything is about to expire. Everything is rotting. Everything is awful. Everything is happening at once to her, and she feels so alone. And this is a very bleak book. And as the author said in an interview with NPR, she said like she tries out that hopeful thing that everybody was telling her she has to do, especially all the publishers that told her that that's what you want to do because we just got out of the pandemic. Many authors are choosing to have that like comfy, warm feeling. 
And she tries that out. It just doesn't ring true for her. And she feels that the truth really do deserve a place. And I'm so glad she did write this book the way she wants it. Because, you know, there are some days that you just... You just want an acknowledgement that things are not going well, that the world sucks, there's horrible things happening, there's not much you could do about it, you have no control over it, like why do you, why do we are going to work every day, everything is just going to end soon. It just feels like that and sometimes you just want that acknowledged. And I think the author really does give us that space in this book for those of us who want that. And it also let us all kind of maybe look at our black holes. For Cassie, it is her depression, her mental health. For the author, her black hole was actually grief. Her father passed away just before the lockdown and she was actually working in Silicon Valley. And she remembers she would call her father and tell him about all the things that happened there, all the unbelievable madness that is going on in Silicon Valley. And her father would say, you know, you should take notes because one day you're going to write about this. And, and that's what she did. And so she was trying to work out her own black hole of grief. She did a lot of research. She like tried to learn a lot about what we think black holes are. And of course, even she said as she was writing this book, our understandings have already evolved, have already changed. So she had to try to figure out how that fits into her story because she really wants to know where did her dad go? What's on the other side? And that's something that she was trying to work out. Somebody told her that her book is like a panic attack. And the author said that she may have written a very sad beach book because it's like one of those books you can't stop reading, but it's just so super sad. It's a hard book to read. It is bleak, but I think some readers will, will feel seen by this book. I will leave you with Kristen Arnett, which of course I love. I will leave it with her quote. Reading this book felt like pressing repeatedly on a bruise, the most pleasurable kind of pain. So this is Ripe by Sarah Rose Etta. All right. So after that existential dread, let's go to our existential question for the day. Today, I would like my book friend to use one word to describe their reading year so far. What is your year like? Fiona, I'm going to use the word current. Do I get to explain it or is that it? <laughs> I feel like usually I struggle at the end of the year with like, oh, you know, my favorite books that were actually published this year. And then I'm like, oh, well, I only have two. <laughs> so I guess they're my favorite. Um, but this year I'm like, I'm reading all of these, these ones that are like coming out just right in 2023. So that feels good. CD? I debated whether I was going to use this word or not because it doesn't set up a very nice looking year so far. So the word that I've chosen is work. And um, the reason is because I can't put four in front of it because it's just one word. And it's just because I, I have no time. I have no time to read. And so all of my reading is taken up by reading books for this podcast. <laughs> and so that's pretty much what has guided my reading. And I have not not enjoyed the books that I have read. Um, some of them I have quite enjoyed, but uh, but that has been what has led led my reading so far this year. I was reminded, Sadie, that in the very, very first episode, when I asked everybody to choose five words to describe their reading, you choose six. So I felt like you could have another word before that. But I wasn't the only one. There were, there no, were you were the only one. That, that struggled. Nope. There were a few of us that struggled to contain in my words. Yeah, and some people try to argue the hyphenated words and <laughs> yes. whatever. Yeah. So, 
How about you, Allison? Today, I'm going to go with eclectic. Um, I've been reading pretty widely this year. I've been reading everything from poetry to manga to big epic fantasy to biographies. So, um, I, yeah, I'm going to go with eclectic. Miss Corrine? Definitely got two, but I'm going to have to like land on one because I refuse to cheat at this. At this. Um, I'm going to go with... Thursdays. So we record this on a Friday morning. And because I cannot do anything without a pressing, horrible, looming deadline, um, I usually leave my reading to Thursday night, usually quite late, very late. So most of my reading of novels has been done on Thursdays. I'm one of the people that like the pandemic destroyed their ability to read for pleasure. So it has been nice to kind of have that that very pressing deadline to kind of force me to get through uh, a book. And I have I have found some that I, I have really enjoyed and some that I haven't. So yeah, we're going to go with Thursdays. I hope you're not traumatized by that particular day of the week after this. Yeah, so I I guess, again, seeming like Sadie, this doesn't sound good, but I think I'm going to go with middling because looking at my trusted spreadsheet, most of the books that I read this year were kind of like three stars, three and a half stars. And some of them I feel so bad that I refuse to like star them on Goodreads because I feel bad about it. <laughs> but like, it was just a lot of like, especially familiar offers that I was like really looking forward to their new books. And they were just kind of like, Eh, for me, so I was slightly disappointed, probably because too high expectations. But yeah, usually I do have more of those, but I didn't have any books that I'm like, oh, after 10 pages, I'm like, can I go rate it now? Because this is a five-star book. Like, I want more of that. And that hasn't come. So yeah, it's it's fine. So maybe, maybe there's still another, like, what, five months ago? Maybe, maybe there will be somebody better. All right. Well, thank you, book friends. Let's get back to our books and get back to our one word. Fiona, what have you got for us today? Yeah. So the book I chose today is called Inland by Tia Obrecht. It is about the Western Front. It is the end of the 19th century. We're in Arizona territory. We follow two different characters. Our first character is Laurie, and he kind of starts life off pretty rough, becomes a orphan early on in life and kind of gets jostled around, ends up with a grave robber. Uh, so he starts his life off kind of like robbing graves, and there's some pretty grotesque uh, descriptions of that, and eventually finds himself as part of this kind of like gang of young, young folks. And his two sort of like closest allies are are these pair of brothers, the older brother who runs the gang and the younger brother who obsessively steals things. And when the younger brother passes away, his ghost latches on to Lori. So this is something that happens to Lori quite a lot. And when he interacts with ghosts, he absorbs their want. So uh, whatever in their afterlife they can't let go of, Lori feels compelled to kind of fulfill. So with this character, he is constantly stealing uh, whatever he can, whatever bits and bobs and shiny things to fulfill this want. This actually leads him to Jolly. Uh, Jolly is a camelier and everyone assumes a Turk. Um, there is some interesting identity politics uh, that are quite, quite nuanced. And um, Laurie himself has a father who was not a Turk. So this sort of specification of not wanting to be seen as 
part of uh, this bigger specific whole when you're something sort of adjacent. And so Lori is familiar with that, but finds that he fits in very well with this group of cameleers and everybody just assumes that he is one of them, which ultimately causes him to take on this fake name to avoid the sheriff and the crimes that he's committed in relation to his previous gang. So Jolly is a really interesting character um, and he sort of looks after Lori. But we're also introduced to another character who Lori's narration is actually directed towards. And this is his camel. So that is Lori. Our other character, Nora, is a frontiers woman who basically through marriage was forced to come to Arizona territory and become or, you know, not not forced, but basically is following her husband's footsteps and is now on the frontier and her character is a very interesting exploration of the insanity, the negative mental mental health consequences that can come from being uprooted into this extremely difficult lifestyle where you don't really have anybody to lean on and your husband is always gone. And this particular husband also doesn't seem to keep her up to date on anything, which is very frustrating. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's this becomes a sort of unreliable narrator. She makes all of these assumptions that are either willfully ignorant or just ill-informed because of her status as a woman. She has three sons, two of them are older and are sort of off and involved in their father's business. And then a younger son who was involved in an accident and is the pet of the family because of that incident and also because he's just a very sweet and lovely boy. There is also a character her name is escaping me, but she's a distant relative of Nora's husband. And she's sort of been turned out of different houses because she has this affinity for the occult. And she uh, is taken into homes to to do seances, but then is also turned out for being like unchristian. And she's sort of like the bane of Nora's existence because she's soppy and she's not strong like Nora. And she's always, you know, like seeing things and grabbing Nora's wrists and saying, there's a presence here. And it kind of drives Nora nuts. So when Nora's husband uh, goes out to find water, which is quickly dwindling for them, it sort of starts the incidents of the book and Nora finds herself in this increasingly desperate situation but is unwilling to acknowledge it. So we have this sort of more sweeping story with Laurie that happens over a long period of time all about these cameleers uh, and then this immediate desperate situation with Nora and as we read the book we are finding out how they are going to intertwine. So it's really well written and quite compelling characters. I love the Western Frontier. I don't know why it's this whole, you know, like we have this whole cultural idea about the Western frontier, but a lot of it is, of course, is fabricated and whitewashed. And what's really cool about this book is that it is based on some historical incidences. For instance, this group of camels who are brought to Arizona territory to serve in military raids against indigenous peoples. And then in reality, in real life, there's all of these folk stories that come up around them because there's these roaming camels who've been letting let go from um, these situations and they're charging people in the desert and they're, you know, like being seen in the night and like, what is this strange creature? So when I found out that that part was like, you know, drawn from 
some truth. I found it was just so compelling. And the camels themselves and the relationship that the cameliers, especially Lori and and Jolly, have with the camels um was like a very sweet, almost like like a twisted whatever that story is about the dog who, you know, is like from the dog's perspective. Like this just sort of like we came to love these camels in a in a way and, you know, knowing that their fate is actually going to be, you know, not really great. Um, yeah, I really highly recommend this. This was a great read. I don't know that it, the, the stories converged in quite the way that I would have liked, but, you know, I do like a little bit more idealism in my books. And this is definitely like a tense book, but it's not, it, you know, it, it has magical realism elements, obviously, uh, with the ghosts and everything. Yeah, just absolutely compelling characters. And I wanted to point out that I think it's a really good combo of plot and characters. So I've always known that I'm a character-driven reader. I like to read about characters. But last week, I had to read a book about a plot, and I just hated it. I hated it so much. And so what I would say about this is I think it's great for people who like plot and people who like character, um, because it just does a fantastic way of weaving in both and really keeping you on your toes, but also making you care about the people who are involved, despite their kind of like, sometimes not being very likable. So that is Inland by Tia Obrett. Yeah, pick it up. I can't recommend it enough. I really, really loved it. Thank you, Fiona, for a, I guess it's literary, literary western. I mean, yeah, there seems to be a lot more of those these days, which is exciting. I do like a literary Western. If they don't have vampires in it, then I guess literary Western is good enough, I guess. Um, all right. Okay. Last but not least, uh, we have Sadie. I think Sadie has a very Sadie book for us today. I do. I do. Uh, so this is a book that I had originally put on my TBR a couple years ago and it was when I had just started ordering for the YA collection and I ordered it for the collection and I was reading through the description and it sounded fairly interesting but then it got put on the list and never came off of it but it had a one-word title and so it was a good fit uh, for this week's topic and I think kind of looking at the title and and speaking to whether or not it encompasses the book. I think that this one really does. The book that I chose for this week is called Luminous, and it's by Mara Rutherford. And our story follows Leora, and Leora is a young woman who has spent her entire life hiding. Ever since she was a little girl, her father warned her that no one can ever, ever find out what she is. Because if they do, she would lose her freedom forever. This is because Leora is a witch. Now, being a witch or a warlock or a mage is not necessarily a super uncommon thing. There are quite a few in the kingdom of Intala where they live. They are all known. They are all living out in the open. But to be a witch or to be a mage in the kingdom of Intala is pretty much the same thing as being a prisoner. Because any mage who is discovered is turned over to Lord Darius who is the king's advisor and the most powerful warlock in the entire kingdom. And Darius will either use the mage's abilities to increase his own power or further his own ambitions, or if he can't do that, he will imprison or kill the mage. Now, this is the reason that many, many years ago, right after Leora was born, her father chose to move their whole family to the small village of Sylvan. 
This is also the reason that after Leora's mother was killed by a falling star, her father decided to move them out of the village of Sylvan to live in the forest. This is also the reason that he tells Leora she can never, ever, ever talk about the curse of her magic and never, ever let anyone find out her secret. And lastly, this is the reason that Leora's father will always look at her like he doesn't quite trust her and almost like he's afraid of her. So Leora spends her life hiding. When she does leave the house, it is never at night, and it is only with every inch of her skin covered. For Leora's power, while it's not very strong, and she doesn't really think she can do anything with it, it is very, very difficult to miss. Leora's skin glows. It glows with the most radiant light that she thinks is very reminiscent of the falling star that killed her mother. So Leora stays close to home, relying on her sisters, Adele and Mina, and her best friend, Evren, to keep her company and keep her secret. For along with her father, they are the only people in the world who know that Leora is a witch. However, everything changes the night that her younger sister, Mina, sneaks out of the house. Adele and her father are still at the shop in the village, and so Leora is forced to leave the house at night to either find Mina or to find their father and tell him that Mina is gone. So while she is making her way through the dark woods into the village, she is startled by her neighbor. Now, her neighbor is a weaver witch named Margana. And Margana is her best friend, Evren's mother. And while Evren does know her secret, Margana does not. And Leora knows that Margana is one of Lord Darius's witches. And so when Morgana correctly guesses Leora's secret, she is absolutely terrified. However, Morgana chooses to keep Leora's secret, even shielding Leora with her own magic a few days later when Lord Darius comes to Sylvan. Morgana even accepts Leora's request for an apprenticeship, convincing Darius that she cannot go to work at the castle. However, what Morgana is not able to do is protect her sister Mina in the same way. So when Lord Darius offers her the position as a seamstress in the, in the castle, she doesn't really have any choice but to accept. She's not a mage, so what danger could she really be in? So Mina leaves for the castle and the city of Crone, and Leora begins working for Morgana, helping her to treat and to dye the wool that she uses for her weaving magic. Leora hopes that through this apprenticeship, she may finally be able to learn more about her own magic. She also figures that while she's at Morgana, she might be able to find out a bit more about Evren, who has started avoiding her, pushing her away, and disappearing from town for long stretches of time. However, the long stretches that Leora has to spend of dyeing the wool, soaking the wool, hanging the wool to dry leaves her so physically exhausted that she hardly has time to think about anything else. And it isn't until a few weeks into her apprenticeship, when she's on a trip with Morgana to visit Caron, that Leora is finally given the chance to learn more about her magic. She also learns on this trip about the dark magic that Morgana is being made to perform the magic that Darius is forcing her to perform. She also learns that Darius 
has actually known that she is a witch all along, and he isn't prepared to let her slip through his fingers. But Leora and the power that she has never really been allowed to use and which she is only beginning to understand may be the only thing that is capable of standing against Darius. And the only thing that has a chance of destroying this dark weaving that Morgana has been forced to make. However, the more Leora learns about herself and the more that she learns about Darius, she starts to see that there may be more behind her own power and more of a connection between the two of them than she ever thought possible. So now Leora is forced to decide if Darius has truly lost his humanity and is beyond saving or if there's still a chance of redemption for him. But also whether Leora herself is at risk of losing everything, losing her family, losing her friends, losing her home, and losing her own humanity. So for the most part, I really enjoyed this book. There are a few exceptions. Leora has been taught her whole life to mistrust herself, her powers, and pretty much everyone around her. So it takes quite a while for her to kind of open up as a character. And she comes off as being a little bit dull, even ironically, with her power and boring as a character at the beginning. But she does come into herself. And as the story kind of goes on, the author gives Leora more depth as a character and kind of forces her to make these choices and discover kind of who she actually is when she's not hiding this huge piece of herself. And I find that that was sort of when I, I really started to enjoy the book and really started to get into the book. I found that it took a while to get to the main focus, but not necessarily in a bad way. It wasn't a super slow start. I just found that a lot happened in the beginning where there are these huge plot points and these huge character reveals and kind of realizations. And then I would look and I'm like, I'm, I'm only like a third of the way through this book. How is this not the climax of this book? How are we not at the end already? So it wasn't a bad thing. It was just I was surprised that there was there was more to the story. It is very reminiscent of Shadow and Bone by Leigh Bardugo. If you are familiar with that story, it kind of involves that same dark magic that only light can get rid of. And oh, lo and behold, our, our main character has the light who can get rid of that magic. But maybe the person who is wielding that dark magic isn't as dark as they seem to be, but maybe they are. Maybe they are. By the end of it, I was definitely really into it. Um, and I was sad that it ended. I would enjoy reading the sequel and it kind of set it up for a sequel, but I don't actually think that there is a sequel in the works, which is a little bit frustrating because they kind of ended with some of the characters kind of going off on this other journey that I would have enjoyed reading about. But I don't think there is one forthcoming. If you are someone who enjoys a good chosen one trope, it has a friends to lovers storyline, a little bit of a love triangle, and some very frustrating character choices where you found yourself yelling at the characters that if they only made better communication choices, that they really would not find themselves in the seemingly impossible situation that they find themselves in. Just talk to each other. Don't keep secrets. Just, just talk to each other. It's very clear. But then if you enjoy all those things, then I would say that this book is for you. Um, if you like Shadow and Bone and those other kind of chosen one fantasies, then I think that this is this is a great fit for you. So that's Luminous by Mara Rutherford. More words of wisdom from Sadie. Just talk to each other. Then go play the feud. <laughs> if talking doesn't work, then go play the field. <laughs> all right. There you go. 
Ah, all right. Well, thank you, all my book friends, for the one word title book today. I hope you will pick one of these up. We got fantasy, we got YA, we got family drama, we got Western, we got everything for you. So yeah, we will see you again next week for another episode of Keep It Fictional. So thank you for joining us. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.